0: Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program.
1: This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors responding to COVID-19 and preparing for future shocks. In responding to the unprecedented challenges of a global pandemic, stable and effective government action has been key to managing through the crisis and addressing longer term implications for the health and safety of nations. Moreover. Collective strategies have led to identification and resolution of challenges in a way that brings together government leaders, scientists, data analysts, healthcare organizations, academic institutions, and industry. How can governments emerge stronger and be better prepared for future shocks? What actions can be taken to promote digital engagement of citizens and modernize supply chains? And how does emerging stronger and more resilient rest on a solid foundation of data analytics and system security? I'll explore these questions and so much more with IBM global government leaders Tim Patos and Mike Stone, authors of the IBM Center Report, Emerged Stronger and More Resilient, Responding to COVID-19 and Preparing for Future Shocks. Mike, welcome to the show, and Tim, welcome. It's great to have you both. Welcome.
0: Yeah, delighted to be here. Hey, Mike, thanks for having us. It's certainly an exciting time in the world of uh, supporting government.
1: So, Tim, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, government agencies were dealing with a lot of turbulence, and yet government leaders were able to keep the plane aloft and, and keep it working uh, through the first two phases of what was predicted to be a three-phase pandemic. Could you elaborate on the phases of the pandemic? And, and more importantly, what were some of the top challenges being faced then and now?
0: you know, governments in particular found themselves right in the center of the storm in reacting to COVID. I mean, COVID affected society at large, but government specifically. And the challenges we saw is, you know, it's incredible exploding in demand for services and new citizens or citizens who hadn't really interacted with the government up close and personal prior are asking for benefits, asking for services. Services Australia, for instance, they had 100,000 people access their website concurrently at 9 a.m. when they went live on unemployment, and it crashed, right? 26 out of 50 states' unemployment systems here in the United States crashed by April 15th, 2020. And so real, real challenges that government faced. The the net result is, you know, citizens have begun, or how you can say, uh, have lost some faith and trust in their societal institutions in general, but government, in specific, uh, recent report says that only 41% of people trust government to do the right thing. So these are real challenges for for government. Now, what we saw governments trying to do, and we moved to support them, was to break, you know, the initial phases of or the initial days of COVID were completely chaotic, right? And so to simplify it and help governments organize, you know, we sought to break it down into three phases of response. And so phase one would be what we call the, you know, the emergency response of business continuity phase. That's just keeping the lights on, um, enabling remote working, um, you know, all government workers, even in the intelligence side of the world, went to work from home. And just because you have, you know, a laptop and and internet access at home doesn't mean you can access your blinking green screen COBOL-based unemployment system. So how do we enable, um, you know, remote working models, remote learning models? We shipped... 450,000 laptops into New York City to help with disadvantaged students who were going home to work at uh, to learn at home, but they were unwired at home because they're underprivileged. They didn't have wireless or Wi-Fi, so they needed you know Verizon cell cards, for instance, in order to run those laptops. So that was the first phase, keep the lights on. Second phase is what we called recovery and rebuild, and that was all around uh, things like deeper analytics to track what was happening with the virus, where it was going, more modernized supply chains things like contact tracing, vaccine management, and, uh, you know, vaccine credentials. And now we're in the third phase. So we can kind of see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. There will be surges as as we kind of move out of this. But we see the light at the end of the tunnel. And The question that governments are asking themselves now is, how do I emerge stronger and more resilient, right? I made these investments in modernizing and creating a better citizen experience. I need to maintain that, but I also need to put some governance and control over it so I can prepare for the next big thing, whether that's a climate event, or whether it's Godzilla, what's the future shock that we need to prepare for? um, And are we ready for that? So that's, that's where we find ourselves now is this emerge stronger, more resilient phase. And
1: and that third phase that we're talking about, like preparing for the the future shock, it's going to be inevitable, something's going to shock the system. And I was wondering, Mike, or, or Tim, you know, what new knowledge as you reflect on the lessons learned? What are some of the things that government need government Executive leaders need to really think about that are fundamental for transforming how government can pivot in if another shock happens if and when.
2: Well, let me just jump in on the back of what some of uh, what Tim said there. I mean, one of the, the, the key things I think uh, about um, staying afloat during uh, the, the pandemic was the fact that, uh, against most people's expectations. The bandwidth stood up to it all um, and uh, so people were able to work remotely in the end they, despite the fact that we're also loads of people on netflix all at the same time etc et so that was one of the, uh, the the really bright sides of this that the bandwidth that we had available did stand up to it but uh, there are real challenges uh, that, uh, that are out there and those challenges um, being, being big challenges require big solutions and there are a number of themes that sort of uh, fall out of that as you um, reflect on it. The first of those was actually really just how swiftly governments were able to, to respond. Uh, even the slow ones actually caught up pretty quickly. And so there was rapid innovation and, and, and modernization, which led to improved agility. Actually, quite impressive. So if that first theme was rapid innovation and uh, agility, then... The second core theme that would I would uh, reflect on would be uh, the trust and transparency issue that, uh, that Tim mentioned. Now, if you put aside security and privacy concerns, then it's really easy to innovate and deliver new services. But that's also the way to lose the trust because when we provide these new services, we um, in new ways, we've got to balance protecting the citizens' rights, their privacy, their personal liberty, and ensure equity across the piece. Then, of course, this security and the speed of government responses actually exposed not only existing gaps in uh, security, but created new ones, and those have got to be addressed as we, as we move forward rapidly, uh, one would suggest. Um, and then the fourth area is around the workforce and, uh, and the fact that the workforce of, of yesterday is no longer prepared to be able to, with the right skills and means to be able to deal with the digital transformation that's taken place uh, during the course of the last couple of years, actually a decade's worth of, uh, of uh, digital transformation almost over a couple of years. And governments are gonna really have to Im- uh, invest heavily in addressing that uh, talent challenge. Your report in the, it's a compilation of essays. It does a wonderful
1: job of highlighting some of the implications that these that governments are going to need to deal with, uh, if they want to emerge stronger and more resilient, could you guys perhaps tell us a little bit more about these implications?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, to run through this, I mean, there, there are there are three kind of implications that I kind of string together because they're they're sort of all related. Um, so, one is it's it's pretty clear we need to reimagine citizen engagement models and uh, the operations to support them, right? And then there's a, been a lot of this going on. Um, you know, I mentioned that during the pandemic, for many citizens who were looking to you know, get an unemployment benefit, they found themselves newly unemployed, they needed health insurance, they needed unemployment insurance. It was the first time they were interacting with their governments up close and personal. I mean, we all get our driver's licenses and pay our taxes, but how many of us have had to, you know, apply for an unemployment benefit? And those citizens who went to the governments to do that, you know, were kind of bitterly disappointed in the sense that. They have had their expectations set by working with Airbnb and Amazon and maybe their bank, where you know you go to one website, you log on and they just recognize who you are and you're able to get exactly what you need in a very short period of time. You know, we we're looking at one state that has 22 different social services agencies, each with their own website that a citizen would have to navigate through. Gee whiz, that's, that's kind of difficult, right? So this idea of creating a more frictionless citizen experience is one of the implications. And then underneath that, you know, there's a balance needed to um, not only to create this frictionless citizen experience, but modernize the back end to support that An additional surge. I mentioned that, um, you know, 26 out of 50 states, unemployment systems crashed. Why is that? Well, they had these old transactional systems that once I determined that a citizen should be getting this unemployment check, when the demand on that system went up by 900%, uh, the system just crashed. it couldn't cut checks fast enough. So so geez, maybe we ought to modernize that, put it into some sort of cloud-based approach so we have elasticity in our in our transaction system. so it's it's balancing the citizen need with the modernization of the back end and then another implication is securing it. We did a lot of innovation. Mike mentioned, you know there was a lot of innovation that took place and It was sort of amazing actually. I think governments sort of surprised themselves. With how quickly they can move actually it surprised me i've worked in government for years a lot of innovation like 10 years worth of innovation happened in about a two-year period but you know what we did a lot of things in the heat of the moment um and maybe we didn't prioritize security as highly as we should so now an implication is we got to go back and figure out how we put some governance and control over all this innovation so we can maintain the pace but while at the same time putting governance and security around it so we don't open up any Gaps or vulnerabilities. So those are three that kind of go together. It's like frictionless citizen experience, balancing that with governance and control, modernization the back end, and then the security. So
2: let me follow on with another three there, and uh, and really the top one for me out of these next three is the supply chain because what this really exposed was the fragility and interdependence of our uh, our supply chains. The fact that we were exposed. To a single source, in many cases, we might not have thought we were, uh, but uh, our our supplier suppliers and our supplier supplier suppliers were all dependent on the uh, the same source, and it also exposed the downsides of the just in time approach. What's become clear is the need to diversify supply chains, even bring back some key things onshore. So really going against globalisation, and that's particularly the case in the national security space, where we, in some areas, need industrial strategies to protect sovereign needs. Then there's situational awareness. Well, I mean, when we entered this pandemic, we were initially blind as as it unfolded. And really, if we're to understand the impact of policy decisions and to provide transparency, then we've really got to understand the data, it's all about data. We've got to be able to gather quality data, analyze it, interpret it, turn it into actionable intelligence. And to set up that capability, well, that needs to for us to have really concentrated and build on data integrity to uh, uh, deliver that transparency, and also to regain the trust of of citizens that, that Tim's referred to. And then going back to that workforce issue that I mentioned earlier on, you know, having seen that decade of digital transformation in the last couple of years, we've left many people behind. So there's a need to upskill and reskill. A legacy workforce is just as much of an anchor as a legacy systems um, estate. So governments have really got to invest uh, in giving the right levels of knowledge to public servants so that they can operate effectively in this post-COVID world. And one of the ways that uh, of doing that is potentially using Adaptive learning, using AI as a tool to help tailor the learning to individuals rather than having it as pan-group training. So I think between the two of us there, we've covered what we believe are are actually the seven key implications of, of the whole thing.
1: And so, Mike, I want to go from the implications to I mean, any suggestions or insights that you offer, that you and Tim offer, around how government executives or government leaders can be successful in tackling or dealing with these implications?
2: Um, well, what's important um, for success in, in, in our view is that dealing with those imperatives is we've got to have an, a, a approach, an approach to solving uh, some key touchstones. No, simply put, we need to be able to predict outcomes, we need to be able to automate at scale, we need to be able to secure everything. You've heard us talk about that a couple of times already, and doubtless we'll come back to it again. And we've got to modernise uh, across the board. For example, in modernising supply chains, we've got to collaborate with suppliers to understand their weaknesses, and to, so we can predict impacts and, and outcomes. We need to be able to automate the way uh, that the data is presented for situational awareness using AI. Uh, and we need to ensure the security of each element whilst modernizing our whole approach. Um, and, and that may well include industrial strategies, as I've mentioned, uh, to protect national sovereignty.
1: So, embracing the new urgency to harness technology, leading government scaled to meet demand, as you both pointed out, and delivered new services and supported new ways of actually working. I was hoping to get both you, Tim, and Mike to provide some examples of how governments across the globe leveraged AI to improve citizen services.
0: So, let's put that in the context, and I'll give you some examples of something like citizen care. All right. I'm a citizen. I'm in the state of New York. I'm newly unemployed. My mom's in the hospital. I need some help. What, what do I need to do? Right. what does that look like from the, from the point of view of state of New York? You know, state of New York needs to predict what, what the citizen demand is going to be. Um, and when I say citizen demand, not only requests um, for benefit, a request for service. So someone's calling into the call center or they're going down to the office. Okay, I need to predict how many people are coming. What who do I need to have on staff? Um, what benefits are they likely going to need? So I'm prepared before they get there with the right staff and the right knowledge to serve them. I then need to automate you know, the process through serving them, taking as many routine tasks off the, off the plate of the call taker as we can, so that that call, when it happens, becomes that much more efficient. And they need to secure the citizen data, right? We're dealing with personal information, all kinds of PII, also family information, health information. Uh, and it's very important for, for the citizens to trust that the state of New York, when I share with information with them, that that's not gonna get out somewhere. And then I need to modernize. So once the citizen and the government agrees that, hey, this is the benefit that you're entitled to, uh, we can actually transact that. We can send that off. A check can be cut and that money can show up in my bank account, right? State of New York, much like many states, they have multiple social services agencies, each running their own programs and even multiple programs with each one of those agencies. And so they undertook a, uh, a 12-week project to take those 19, they have 19 systems uh, in the state of New York, uh, consolidate those onto an easy to read screen uh, that helps the call taker uh, you know, look across all these agencies and determine which benefit. Has AI in there to automate that process recommending based on, uh, you know, what the citizen is saying, recommending what benefit that they are entitled to. And this ended up saving the agents about 20 minutes per call. So they went from being able to take, you know, three calls an hour to 30. So that's, uh you know, that's a 10 times increase in productivity, happier citizen, uh, lower cost for, for the state. Another one is state of Rhode Island, very similar. This wasn't in unemployment. This was in their uh, Rhode Island Department of Health. And they started with vaccine management and contact tracing. And very quickly, their call centers were just completely overwhelmed. You know, so many people coming in, where do I get my vaccine? And so many people coming, calling in and saying, okay, we have to do contact tracing. And so the question was, how do we better serve those citizens while we are trying to staff up the number of people we have in the call center? So they adopted a virtual assistant, right? And the virtual assistant is the first line of defense, so to speak. When a citizen reaches out to the state, this can be on the phone, so it can be telephony, or it can be a, you know, a a chat screen on the Rhode Island site. You can go check out RIDO, Rhode Island Department of Health. And when I come in as a citizen, I can ask that uh, virtual assistant questions and the easy questions and answers. And therefore that call is deflected. They don't have to talk to a human being because they get their answer, you know, for routine questions answered very quickly. So Rhode Island saw an 85% deflection rate where 85% 85% of the calls were deflected because the citizen was satisfied and they only had to respond to 15% of the calls where there was something really complex uh, that required, you know, a human, human assistance. And so again, happier citizens, greater productivity for the state at a lower cost. So those are two examples against the predict, automate, secure, and modernize that Mike mentioned.
2: Yeah. Terrific examples. Mike. Yeah. So a um, a couple from me as well. I- First of all, the Italian Red Cross and Ministry of Health, who um, uh, used uh, AI to predict ambulance transport times with 98% accuracy. They used predictive analytics based on 200,000 prior records. So, I mean, an incredible uh, example there. And then the Department of Veterans Affairs in the US, dealing with huge numbers of increased uh, calls and claims needed to improve citizen service and at the same time cut their administrative costs. And they used AI and process automation to digitize uh, their incoming uh, benefits packages and corresponding uh, correspondence. Uh, they actually cut processing time from up to five to 60 days to hours. And within just eight months, they would got 200 people who'd been previously handling piles of paper, retrained and into new positions. So another couple of uh, examples there for you. Yeah, and you, so
1: Mike, I want to stay with you. You, you acknowledge in the report um, that uh, not every new system or uh, approach uh, uh, mechanism deployed during the pandemic was successful, and and I was interested in, in in if you could share with us examples of some of those less than successful efforts. But more importantly, uh, what were some of the reasons they missed the mark, and what are the characteristics distinguishing the more successful government responses to those that were less or slower? <laughs>
2: Well, you're absolutely right there, uh, Michael. Not everything hit the mark indeed. There were, for instance, some uh, vaccine scheduling tools, which were very difficult to use. And of course, there were lots of citizens and particularly the, the poorer communities didn't have access to bandwidth or even to devices. So the more successful governments really they looked to create diverse teams that could really dig into what the challenges truly were. And then they used design thinking to develop solutions that answered the uh, question uh, and were easy to adopt. Uh, And what's more, many of them actually teamed up with technology players uh, to help them on the journey. Now, that journey, of course, uh, is not over, and it's noticeable that there is a very much increased Focus on citizen experience going forward, citizen service, citizen experience uh, in terms of both citizen satisfaction, but also in terms of operational efficiency uh, and innovation.
0: Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to pick up on that. I think the the, the golden nugget that might put it up there, uh, in my view, is that this has been a journey, not an event. And what do I mean by that? Some of the failures we've seen, not, you know, prior to COVID as well, but, but then rendered, you know, in stark relief during COVID is, you know, my recommendation would be to not go out and try to build the intergalactic, you know, hybrid cloud architecture with AI and hope you're gonna get value out of it, right? The um the the reality is that while technology today, um, you know, in this in this predict, automate, secure, and modernize rubric, while that'll be transformational and revolutionary, the path to success is very much iterative and evolutionary, right? Start with a cross-functional team, as Mike said. Focus on very specific use cases, the burning use case um, or series of use cases. Uh, Do some design thinking and move iteratively. Lightweight low trauma solutions to very specific pain points. Get value, build competence, and go to the next one and the next one and the next one.
1: What are the key actions governments can take to modernize and strengthen supply chains? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
3: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies, such as robotic process automation blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report, Financial Management for the Future, at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner, breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, responding to COVID-19 and preparing for future shocks with IBM global government leaders, Tim Patos and Mike Stone. So Mike, in the previous segment, you you talked about um, the supply chain, uh, the fragility, the interdependence. I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the benefits and apparent vulnerabilities of supply chain interdependence in a globalized world. And how did the pandemic disclose both? Could you kind of give us
2: more? Well, we've we've long heard about the uh, proverbial butterfly fluttering its wings and causing a tsunami on the other side of the uh, the world. Well, and that's what really what Black Swan events uh, are all about. And it's not just the pandemic that has exemplified that. And we saw with the blocking of the Suez Canal with the um, Ever Given in March of last year, the huge impact that that had because. You know, some 12% of global trade a day goes through the Suez Canal, and because of that blockage, 369 odd container ships were held up. So we were uh, delaying nearly 10 billion of trade a day. But all sorts of massive knock-on implications of that. You know, ships were in the wrong place for for weeks afterward, uh, and it really, really exposed the fragility of uh, of just-in-time. You know, also in the pandemic things were made worse by panic buying. Uh, The best example, I think, of that that people will remember is the lack of toilet paper around the place. Actually, there were things that went the other way as well. There were some massive surpluses because they just couldn't get things to market. For instance, milk. Uh, The US dairy farmers were dumping uh, 3.7 million gallons of milk a day back in uh, April uh, 2020. In a, a supply chain that's um, hugely inter- interdependent. We have all these fragilities and it's not always just the top tier. I mentioned the fact that it's suppliers, suppliers and their suppliers as well who are uh, exposed. And quite often the challenges were in the second and third sub tiers uh, of that in the component manufacturers, in the raw material area, uh, etc. So pandemic, yes, but there are other issues that really bring this issue of the supply chain uh, interdependence and fragility to life, too.
1: You know, Tim, I was wondering, you know, healthcare and government, more than any other sector, face the serious, um, you know, implications of the supply chain disruption. Could you maybe elaborate on some of the challenges faced by the leaders in these sectors?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, if everything that Mike just said about, you know, supply chain disruptions writ large, really hit home within, you know, the area of healthcare, simply because we saw this incredible spike of demand in the healthcare system that caused all kinds, you know, caused all kinds of issues. And, and, you know, before I even get into that, you know, Mike mentioned the toilet paper and the milk and that sort of thing. And that was certainly most visible to all of us, right? It wasn't that we ran out of toilet paper necessarily in the supply chain. It was that we had too much toilet paper in one segment of the supply chain, which is the industrial segment, serving hotels, restaurants, office buildings, and not enough in the consumer part of the supply chain, right? Because they're packaged differently. They're actually different product products, excuse me. And the supply chain simply was not agile enough to shift the industrial product over to consumer products, right? So what does this mean for the supply chain specifically to health? Well, healthcare companies needed and hospitals needed was real-time visibility and audibility across the supply chain. Actually, where is the stuff uh, that we need to take care of our patients? They needed dynamic supply chain responsiveness so that when they were able to you know, predict a demand in a certain hospital because we saw infections rising in that geographic area, how can we, in an automated way, shift the supply chain to get the right product there? It was also this issue of supply chain integrity where, okay, we need a lot of M95 masks and we just don't have enough supply. So a number of companies that don't make M95 masks jumped into the M95 game. If you remember the, the MyPillow guy, right, or the MyPillow company, he started making uh, M95 masks. Well, how do I know as a hospital that that mask that I'm ordering from some new supplier, that that mask actually is certified to the M95 level. Ford started making, they changed over their automotive supply chain to start making ventilators. They weren't selling a whole bunch of cars, as you can imagine. So they changed over to uh, to the ventilators. And a number of companies that do that. Now, if you have a brand name like Ford, you can be reasonably assured they're doing the right thing, right? But you know, how do you know that the ventilators you're ordering aren't being made out of some garage in Timbuktu? So supply chain integrity is critically important. then of course, securing the supply chain, threat mitigation, you know, there were actually attacks on our supply chain during the uh, vaccine rollout. So, So those are the challenges and and what the healthcare system did to move to do, again, back to project, automate, secure, modernize is, you know, okay, we need to collect and organize and understand all our supply chain data. We need to do that in real time. So how are we gonna do that? We need a robust analytic capability. We need to automate responses with AI-assisted workflow. So when, when something like the Suez uh, incident happened. The system, the supply chain, or actually what I like to call the supply chain link fence because everything's interconnected, um, needs to adjust on its own.
2: Not only that, it's, the, uh, it, it's a chain link because uh, it's as, as strong as the weakest link.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, and then they started putting security on top of it. Uh, and then of course, modernizing the back end. Again, it's back to back-end supply chain modernization, so that we can talk the different nodes of the supply chain. This web, this chain link fence, can talk to each other across across the ecosystem. So we all know what's happening in this, you know, tier two, tier three. So those are some of the things that they did, and um, and actually it worked out pretty well.
2: Mm.
1: You know, Tim, I was hoping that you could elaborate more on what needs to be done to modernize and strengthen the supply chain. To you know, to in Increase its agility and resiliency for future shock.
0: Right. So so I mentioned some of the work that's going on already. And, you know, and that work is, uh, you know, is continuing. It's it's about really focusing on the supply chain as a web, as a supply chain like fence. It's recognizing that the supply chain is not a serial thing. We kind of think that the supply chain is this, you know, point A to point B, and it's a serial chain that you can see. And that's not the case at all. I mean, we saw this when we did a lot of work around vaccine management, when the vaccine started being rolled out. And if you think about vaccine management, you just look at it, for instance, in the context of the United States. Okay, Mm -hmm. So you have the the manufacturer, that's Moderna, Pfizer, et cetera. They're creating the vaccine. When they create a lot of vaccine, they issue a birth certificate to that lot, because Mm -hmm. it's not enough for us to know that this is the Pfizer vaccine we t- need to know that this is the Pfizer vaccine from this particular lot, right? In case there's an adverse events or we need to track you know, effectiveness of different lots, et cetera. That set of vaccine then goes to the federal government for distribution. We, we did some of that through the National Guard. It might go right to a 3PL provider like a FedEx or UPS or you know companies like that. It goes to the state government. It may skip the state government Completely and go to the local pharmacy or the local, local retailer or right to the city. But when it does that, everybody needs to have visibility to that one specific vial, that lot of vaccine as it moves through that supply chain. The feds need to know about it so they can track adverse, adverse events. The state governments need to know about it because they need to see where their vaccines are going in the state and who's getting vaccinated. And even even different from a mask, the state needs to know which vial went into the arm of which citizen, um, so that we can you know again track adverse events. So it's it's very much the the key is changing the way we think about the supply chain. It's very much a supply chain web. It's about creating shared visibility across an ecosystem so that we all know what's happening at different nodes in the supply chain, and then automating our response when things change. And, of course, making sure we have security over it. So, I mean, in the the vaccine, you know, there were cases of um, counterfeit vaccines. So making security over that is important.
1: So, Mike, government leaders surprised themselves, as you pointed out, with their ability to rapidly innovate. However, in the rush to respond, critical security and protection measures may have been deprioritized, overlooked, or ignored. Uh, Would you highlight for us, Mike, some of the most sensitive or serious security challenges being faced from this response?
2: Yeah, I don't think they ever um, deprioritized it in the supply chain area, but there's no doubt that in the rush to deliver new capabilities as a result of the, uh, the, the pandemic particularly in the support of um, remote working that, that shortcuts were taken temporarily at least um, that in, in, increased the risk and that has a, a, a knock-on implication for the uh, the, the supply chain uh, and of course the supply chain is is huge and some of my biggest breaches when I was uh, the chief digital and information officer of, of a government department in the UK were with uh the the supply chain the the trick now is to uh is to sustain if not increase the base of innovation whilst closing those security gaps and, but we have seen a, a dramatic surge in cyber security incidents of that there's no doubt particularly ransomware and the exposure of personal information and uh that obviously has a a, a big impact on this chain link fence that we were talking about uh, there's a big financial impact. Uh, at the very least, the average cost per about, um, incident is about $2 million, uh, and often far, far more than that. But perhaps more alarming is that actually in the public sector, uh, it often takes uh, up to three, nearly a year, 330 days is the average, to contain a breach once it's identified. So it's really important that we're on top of this. And particularly on top of it, in the supply chain, not just in government itself, and of course, none of this is helped by the fact that there is a, a dearth of security experts with the right skills available, both to industry and to government as a as a, as a whole.
1: So, Mike, I want to continue on with you because you know the number of risks and security events grow exponentially and government security operation teams are adopting what they call zero trust security measures. Uh, perhaps you could describe for us what is meant by zero trust um, security and maybe outline some of the principles for protecting IT and OT.
2: Well, I've been adopting a zero trust approach for, for many years, again, when I was the chief digital information officer of a, a major government department in, uh, in, in the UK. And the way that I thought about it was that I always assumed breach of all of my networks. Now, that didn't mean to say that they had been breached, but if you assume assume breach, then you think about things in an entirely different way, because suddenly, what's most important isn't the perimeter uh, of your systems um, and capabilities. It's what what is the crown jewels? What are the crown jewels? What are they, the the bits of uh, of data and information that we cannot afford to lose? And how are we going to protect those from being exfiltrated, or if they are exfiltrated, that they are gobbledygook and, uh, and meaningless to whoever uh, it has managed to exfiltrate them? If you take that approach, uh, then all of a sudden, the, the perimeter is is an also ran. Yes, it's important, but it's it's the least important of the the, the areas, and that's particularly. Uh, the case at the interface between uh, information technology and operation technology, which is m- most often where mission-critical capabilities uh, exist. And I think of there being a number of uh, of principles that we have to uh, to take into account here, I mean, the things that we have to focus on. We should focus on sensitive and private data, both commercially sensitive and PII-type data. We need to focus on the insider threat we need to focus on the supply chain we need to focus on the interface between it and ot because that as i said is one of the big areas for uh, uh, the uh, cyber challenges and we've got to protect uh, the hybrid cloud Uh, we've got to manage access and uh, monitor the activities on it but also we need to secure the remote workforce lots of bring your own capabilities in many in many government departments uh making sure we don't have unmanaged uh devices seeking to eliminate vpns and and also offering different routes other than passwords to uh, to authenticate are some of the things that we ought to be uh, thinking about as as governments along the way here That's great. So, Tim,
1: you've mentioned and and you and Mike both have mentioned that, you know, government organizations can't simply spend or hire their way to a a healthy security posture. Uh, So to close critical capability and skills gaps, several approaches and technologies are needed. I was hoping you could outline for us sort of the next gen cognitive security solutions and the way these types of solutions can help government security teams
0: you're hitting on the uh you know the key challenge which is that you, you can't just throw more bodies at the problem and expect that everybody's going to give you that incremental piece of value. I think the the overarching theme when you look across what what Mike just said is is creating simplicity for the security analysts and those who are looking for threats across their security landscape, right? So we're not just talking about the perimeter, we're talking about what's happening almost at the root level within each different system. Now um just by nature of how business has evolved in the last 10 to 15 years, what government leaders are facing is that they have different security capabilities and different security um, uh, tools. In each of their particular agencies and different departments, and certainly across an ecosystem, think about the, uh, you know, the supply chain ecosystem in which we just touched, where everything is kind of interrelated. Each of these tools has different capabilities, has different data flows, um, and and so it's it's sort of a hodgepodge and a mess, right? And so the question becomes, how do you create um, shared visibility, a shared ability to visualize what's happening across your security landscape? through one screen, regardless of which tool exists in each of those departments. And so that's very much the next the next wave and where we see security heading is creating sort of a, a master dashboard that is simple and easy to use, where you don't have to be a 25 year you know, PhD in security in, in, in order to spot a threat uh, and respond to it, right? And so, how does something like AI help in this? Well, once you have this, this view to what's happening from a security point of view and what your network traffic looks like, for instance, uh, across an ecosystem, uh, you can use AI to figure out what's normal, right? Um, what is the normal behavior of the system day to day? And once AI understands what, for instance, if you look at just one narrow pipe, you know, what does network traffic look like? Then AI can help you spot the abnormal. Right. You get to your desk in the morning. Hey, we're seeing some behavior in this particular area over here that we haven't seen in the past. AI is telling us to take a look at that and AI is also potentially giving us what's the next best action to to respond to that threat. So it's the, the overarching theme is simplicity. Making it easy so for so so that someone like myself can understand what's happening, and then providing AI infused guidance to to detect threats and, and suggest the next action.
1: The next part of my question was was to Mike is when you do all this, Tim, you, you leverage the next gen cognitive solutions, security solutions. It's important to be to approach the security conversation with collaborative approaches. And why is that, Mike? Why is it so important to pursue it that way?
2: I would um, simply reinforce the perspective that today's systems are highly interconnected um, and therefore it's vital that all of the parties that are involved, and that that means governments at all levels, uh, it means the technology firms, um, it means the uh, organizations and individuals that are impacted by um, cyber challenges, all need to collaborate. If we don't, then again, it's a question of that that we're only as strong as the weakest link. How does having a robust analytic
1: foundation better position public sector leaders to tackle high impact, low probability events? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
3: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors responding to COVID-19 and preparing for future shocks with IBM global government leaders, Tim Patos and Mike Stone. So switching gears to the other aspect of your report, which is um, a call to build an analytic foundation. And Mike, I want to stay with you if you don't mind. Why must public sector leaders build a robust analytic foundation that helps them weather more effectively the black swan or the high impact, low probability events like the pandemic or supply chain disruption?
2: Well, the heart of all of this is data. And um, data can be seen as the, the new gold, the new oil, the new water, whatever's the most precious resource that's uh, out there uh, at any given time. Uh, and there are actually experiments going on with companies uh, putting uh, the value of their data on on the balance sheet. Uh, And yet I know of no organization uh, that makes effective use of more than 20 to 25 percent of its existing data stocks, which, if you put that another way, means that we're wasting between 75 and 80 percent of that most valuable uh, resource. And that's before you bring on the entirely new tsunami of data that's going to come as a result of all the sensors that are now being connected uh, to the Internet all of which have uh, the ability to help us with dealing with these uh, low probability events. But only uh, if we're able to exploit that that data and get great situational awareness out of it. And for that, uh, we need a robust analytical foundation.
1: And Mike, what are some of the challenges that agencies or organizations face in trying to create you know, valuable insight from an abundant uh, resource of data, and perhaps you give some recommendations on how how we can help leaders capitalize on this opportunity.
2: Well, I think here the key is to focus um, more on the challenges in the public sector space than um, than than anywhere else. And uh, and at the end of the day, those include underserved communities which need to be. Properly identified. There is a need to protect citizen privacy and uh, and the service as services evolve, as we've discussed. Uh, There's a a need to integrate services across agencies to give a more Amazon-like feel to things, as Tim mentioned earlier on. Governments have got to deal with the challenge of accessibility for those people uh, with disabilities and uh, and 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 uh, other challenges. So there are some incredible challenges that need to be addressed in this for government to really be able to get at valuable insights across the whole of the, uh, uh, of the citizens citizenry.
1: So Tim, uh, I was wondering, what are some of the key questions uh, most public sector institutions need to address around the idea of understood data? What, what What's some of the guidance you can give them there?
0: Well, I mean, so, so a common theme from, from our discussion today and by the way this has been a lot of fun and uh, I've greatly enjoyed it but a common theme is data right because you need data to inform your supply chain you need data to figure out you know and predict citizen demand um, you need data for situational awareness and you know tie this to my comments about the things that you don't want to do which is to build the intergalactic thing and hope you get value out of it. You know, the key questions that leaders need to ask is, which data do I need to put under my control? Which data do I need to extract insight from? Because the data is just, you know, voluminous. It's There's too much to keep track of and, and, and too much. You can very easily get distracted by data that is not value-add to, to what you're trying to do. So the first question is, what's your mission and what data do you need to effectively you know, prosecute that mission. So what data do you need for situational awareness and creating transparency? You need to understand, you know, in some cases, the potential policy impacts of, or the impact of the policies that you're developing on a policy level on the economy, on personal liberty, on equity, and maybe you do that through modeling. And so what kind of data you need to bring to, to address that? How do you ensure that you're targeting, you know, you're focused on equity, you're targeting the right communities? Uh, underserved communities. Uh, A big thing right now, and we're seeing this play out, certainly in Ukraine, is the value of open source intelligence. So not only data that you have under your control in your enterprise across your ecosystem, but what's being said out there on social media. Um, You know, a lot of the intel in Ukraine right now, we're doing some work, for instance, with the Institute for Study of Warfare. And they're the ones who create the maps that you're seeing on the news periodically. So if you're looking at NBC News or whatever your news channel choice is, you'll see credited down below the Institute for the Study of Warfare. They're pulling all of that information about, you know, where battles are taking place, where troop movements are happening, et cetera. They're doing that all through open source. So how do you embrace and leverage open source? A lot of this comes down to, you know, what are the standards for exchanging data? How are we going to manage this data? And, and do it in a way that serves our mission, but it all comes down to the mission and the use case. What data is important to you in order to prosecute your mission?
1: That's a great point. Yeah, Tim, what do you mean by data fabric?
0: That's a really good question. So let me let me give you a story. I was out a couple of weeks ago speaking with a person who works at FBI CGIS. So this is a little bit outside of, of, uh, of COVID response, but I think it's a great illustrative example. So he's doing a rotational assignment at CGIS, which is the Criminal Justice uh, Inf- Information Center. And when I say rotational assignment, if you're a rising you know, star within the FBI, so you're basically an agent or a special agent in charge, um, you go into these administrative rotational assignments where you're, you're not doing frontline law enforcement, but you're working elsewhere in the agency um, uh, to just kind of understand how the rest of the agency works, okay? So this person I'm talking to is a cop he's an agent. Now, if I go in and have a conversation with him, uh, this person by saying, hey, you need a data fabric. He's going to look at me like I have two heads. He's like, what the heck's a data fabric, right? How's that going to help me? But if I go in and have a conversation with him that basically says, hey, we understand what law enforcement agencies like you are facing kind of universally. You want to be able to harness and collect the data that you have internal to your own enterprise because you have different silos, different program areas within the FBI." You also want to be able to share that information in a secure way with your ecosystem partners at a federal level. So, you know, ATF, DEA, all the three letter agencies. But in addition, you want to make sure so, uh, you want to share with state and local, and you also want to make use of open source information, right? That's what you're trying to do. That gets that, that guy very excited. He's like, yes, that's exactly what we need. I'm like, all right, well, you need a, kind of an architectural capability. That allows you to identify all those data assets, manage them across, you know, a secure multi-hybrid cloud, because that data is all going to exist in different repositories or different areas um, across the ecosystem. You need to manage it, you know, secure it, manage it, and apply AI uh, to get real insight out of it. He's like, Yep, that's exactly what I need. Well, that's a data fabric. Data fabric is an architectural construct that allows you to manage information easily. Um, from a mission and business point of view, not necessarily from a technical point of view, but that's a piece of it, to allow a mission person to manage information across that vast ecosystem in a way that makes sense to them, that they can extract insight, and also make sure it's governed and secure.
1: That's great. Thanks. You know, I was was wondering, I like that concept. So, uh, Mike, uh, we talked about data being the foundation, but perhaps you can give us a sense of how AI plays into unleashing the full power of that data foundation
2: yeah well actually uh, data is the foundation but it's also the heart of what i refer to as uh, government 4.0 um uh, government 4.0 actually is very similar to industry 4.0 in the sense that it's uh, it's defined the four by it all being about data and and digital transformation and uh, one of the key elements of uh, of government 4.0 is uh, the whole area of uh, of ai Um, which generally speaking, I refer to as augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, because that's what it does. It it augments our ability. But it's AI and intelligent automation, that whole cognitive family of things actually allows us to be able to use, and this is going to be a real technical term I'm going to use now, uh, to deploy oodles of algorithms onto the the bandwidth um, uh, that's out there, onto the uh, the data to reason over that data in inverted commas to really help us to get inside, uh, the decision cycle of, uh, the competitor, the adversary, the disease, whatever it is, uh, in order to enable us to be able to disrupt rather than be disrupted. So to my mind, that is the, uh, the, 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 key role of, uh, of, of AI in all of this.
1: You know, uh, for both of you, I have one last question. And it's around, what does the future hold in this area?
2: Well, let me go back to what I talked about in terms of um, uh, government 4.0. I think of this as uh, the the overall playground uh, for for me, um, really being, uh, have data at its heart uh, to really, to be able to uh, exploit that. You need uh, a couple of foundational capabilities. The first of those Uh, is a compute layer, um, which is principally now uh, uh, cloud and uh, both public and private, but also uh, truly on-prem capabilities. And to really, all uh, governments these days have got multiple clouds. So the the ability to have an open multi-hybrid cloud is really important to be able to host, to be able to Uh, Store and manipulate that data. Then you need a transport layer, which is delivered through fiber, 5G, Wi-Fi 6, LoRaWAN, a whole series of things that enable that that data to be moved around. But then there are four families of of, uh, capabilities that really are maturing at just the right time to be able to both exploit uh, those foundational horizontal layers that I just talked about and the data to make themselves more powerful and also the rest of the playground more powerful. The first of those is around artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. The second is around uh, the internet of things and already there we're seeing huge benefits in terms of uh, maintenance. Now you don't put whole assemblies in to maintain, you only put the parts that say they need to be maintained uh, in to be uh, maintained, huge opportunities there. The third area then is around robotics, and I include in there additive manufacturing, but industrial arms, uh, medical arms, because now remote microsurgery becomes feasible. But all of the drones, land, air, sea, subsea, uh, which can both be driven through this, but also provide more data. Uh, And then the final family is around augmented reality and virtual reality, but more augmented at this stage, the ability to put more uh, an overlay on the real world but what's really important around that is that we have a security uh, ring around the whole of that playground uh, because if we are sure that um that there is no uh, malware that's been injected into the system then some of those sensors can actually be trusted to make decisions semi independent of uh, of humans and once we've got that then we can start to deal with the uh, the, the the whole area or um, so so far, mostly unrequited um, promise of edge compute. So, to my mind, this is hugely exciting. Data's right at the very heart of it, but there are all sorts of things at play uh, around that.
0: Yeah, and, and Mike, I don't, I don't have a lot to add to that. I think, I think Mike Stone um, really covered the waterfront there. In, in the past, it's been hard to get governments to invest left of boom, left of you know, prior to some big event and i think most government leaders i've talked to realize that you know we can't be unprepared for the next big thing the next future shock and so you'll you'll see a lot of investment in the types of capabilities mike
2: just talked about and indeed what we're doing is taking this um the, the, the thought leadership we provided in this area uh and um using that as a Uh, a springboard for a new set of thought leadership in this coming year, which was going to be all about dealing with future shocks.
1: Wonderful. I mean, this is terrific. Um, Great way to kickstart that effort, Mike and, and Tim, uh, both. Thank you both for joining me today and for the wonderful insight important insights you offered today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks Mike. Greatly enjoyed
1: it. Yeah, me too. This has been a special edition of the business of government hour, a conversation with authors with IBM global government leaders Mike Stone and Tim Pedos. Authors of the IBM Center Report emerge stronger and more resilient, responding to COVID-19 and preparing for future shocks. You can download this report and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
3: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Interviews, news, and intel on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Federal News Network. Search Federal Drive. WFED Washington. WTOP FM HD2 Washington. W283 DG Sterling. WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives
0: make informed decisions.
1: We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.